I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're talking with Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, a startup Y Combinator funded in 2012 and is now a publicly traded company. Coinbase is literally in the middle of the exciting new world of cryptocurrency. And it's particularly interesting to explore this world with Brian, who's unusually candid, even for Silicon Valley. Hope you enjoy it. So today we're so excited to have Brian Armstrong, the founder and CEO of Coinbase with us on the show. Welcome, Welcome Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to see you both yeah. again. Oh my gosh, thanks for being here. Um, Got to indulge me for a moment. I need to set the scene a little bit this time. I'm going to go back to 2012 because Coinbase was in our summer 2012 batch. And I had a little look at your application and the interview mm -hmm. notes. And I thought this would be funny to bring up. Back then, we didn't do a great job capturing all of our feedback from the interviews. But there were two notes, one from PG and one from Trevor. And in it, they both said, hi, Beta, about the interview <laughs> <laughs> about Coinbase. And I yep. love that because hi, Beta is exactly what you were. And it's exactly the kind of bets Y Combinator loves making and continues to make. These potential outliers that could easily fail or they could be a huge success and go public like Coinbase did, you know, back in 2021. And you are the success story of this high beta. So what I'd love to do is go back in your mind a little bit to when you were first getting started on the application. You did describe it very succinctly, I might add, as PayPal for Bitcoin. Let's go back to that time. Yeah, so the first version of the app did not have any ability to buy or sell crypto. That actually came later. And we can talk about how that happened because it was not, it seems obvious now, but it actually was not at that time. So I guess just kind of zooming out a little bit, you know, in 2010, I had come across the Bitcoin white paper and I actually first saw it on Hacker News. Really? Yeah, I was checking, you know, daily as my daily reading. Um, <laughs> and there was a few things in my background that allowed me to read that paper and I think get interested in it. I, I won't claim that I understood everything in it the first time. It's pretty dense. And I had to actually go subsequently read it a bunch of times. And I kind of couldn't stop thinking about it for about six or 12 months, which is how Coinbase eventually came to be. But before I even get to that part, I mean, what was it that kind of caught my attention when I first read the Bitcoin white paper? Well, number one, I had studied computer science and economics. So mm -hmm. kind of the intersection of those things in school helped me understand a little bit of what it ha was the paper was talking about. I also had lived for a year in Argentina, and I had seen that country had gone through hyperinflation. And so it gave me a little bit of an appreciation that what we take for granted sometimes in the US, which is that we have relatively stable currency and financial infrastructure, is really not the norm in most places of the world. And then I had also been an early employee at Airbnb, and I had seen how difficult it was for them to move money to 190 countries all over the world, both receiving payments in and then paying out to hosts. And yeah. I was actually one of the engineers working on a little bit of that infrastructure about, and, and it, was, it was broken. It was very broken. You know, the, the global financial system is really a patchwork quilt of different proprietary systems in each country. It's very slow. It's expensive. There's high fraud. It's opaque sometimes. I remember we were at Airbnb one time and we were trying to integrate Uruguay of, of all places. And um, we were trying to find these local payout methods in Uruguay where hosts on Airbnb could get paid. And we were reading the documentation and it was kind of inscrutable. And at some point we realized we have no idea. Like, I don't think they had any idea either. And so we just had to literally try sending $100, find someone on the other side who would pick it up and like, how many Uruguayan pesos even showed up? Because we have no idea what price to quote the customer. That's crazy. Um, and so, and it was kind of opaque by design, you know, because each of these, they were small, like oligopoly local players. 
anyway, the global financial system, I realized, was very broken. And the internet was this global decentralized thing that not, you know, imagine if like the internet had to run where every country was running their own, you know, proprietary system of the internet. And there was like an exchange fee when you wanted to load a website from another country or something. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So WhatsApp was kind of taking off at that time. And I was like, well, what if every payment was kind of as fast, cheap and global as, as WhatsApp? That would be pretty cool. And so that's kind of what got me excited about Bitcoin when I first read that white paper. And mm-hmm. the initial idea was Bitcoin, it seems pretty cool, but it's a very complicated protocol. Let's just try to make it easy to use for the average person. And that's kind of why I wrote PayPal for Bitcoin on the application. And did you own Bitcoin at that time? Like when you read, like after you read the white paper and stuff? Yeah, I think so. Towards the end of 2010, I read the white paper. In the 2011, I was kind of going to early Bitcoin meetups in San Francisco. I started working on a prototype, which would eventually become Coinbase. But I also went and bought, bought some of the early Bitcoin. I remember, I think I bought the first Bitcoin on Mt. Gox uh, that I got was probably around $11. And then um, it promptly crashed down to about $2. And I thought I was a total idiot uh, for buying at the top. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was the first Bitcoin that I ended up getting. Oh, wow. On Mt. Gox. Wow. You're at Airbnb. You're working in on some parts of it are on fraud prevention, right? Because I I know that there's one of the parts that ties into Y Combinator is that Jason Tan of SIF Science, you were working with him on installing his product at Airbnb and you were like working with him at two in the morning, making sure this would work. And he wrote this wonderful recommendation to some partners at Y Combinator saying, Brian's applying. I just can vouch for he's a really hard worker and very determined. So you're at Airbnb. You're becoming a Bitcoin expert. You read the white paper. You say this should be more accessible to people or you say people should be able to like store their Bitcoin in a wallet on their phone. Tell me how that came to pass. Yeah. So I had a couple analogies in my head that I was sort of basing it off of. So one was Email is based on another decentralized protocol called SMTP. And, you know, Paul uh, Bukhide at Y Combinator had created Gmail, right? And I, so Gmail, you know, you could run your own email server on your own computer, but most people don't want to do that. They don't want to worry about, you know, the backups and the security aspects of it and everything. So most people use Gmail or Outlook or something like that. And it's a, it's a hosted email provider. It's in the cloud. And so, you know, you can run it on your phone and, and on the desktop. You lose your phone, all your email's not gone, you know, all these kinds of things. So I was like, Bitcoin's another decentralized protocol, kind of like SMTP. Someone's going to make the Gmail for this. And then the other kind of analogy that I had was GitHub, because Git is actually another decentralized protocol where people do code storage, but you can sort of have a repository on a server, on your client. It's, it's, it, it can be decentralized. And then GitHub, of course, just made it much easier to use Git for the average developer. So Mm-hmm. Those were my two analogies. I was like, all right, someone's going to have to make this. This is a funny story about how sometimes your first idea is the wrong idea, but it helps you get to the right idea. So I was working at Airbnb. This was not a company or I hadn't left my job or anything. Right. And so this was basically just me tinkering on the side um, while I was trying to learn this. And the first version of it that I built uh, with a friend of mine who I'd gone to school with was really a it was a mobile Bitcoin wallet. I, we actually... It's probably still on GitHub. I think it's just called Bitcoin Android. And we basically made it where the whole Bitcoin node would run on your phone. And the reason I did that was I thought, you know, well, this is not a company. I can't like start hosting people's Bitcoin and running this stuff in the cloud. And like that would require a lot of money and security. And, and so I just built it on the phone where everybody, you know, you can run this on your phone if you want to store your own crypto, but I'm not really responsible for it was kind of right. the idea. And it was all open source. So he and I worked on this on our nights and weekends and we put it out there and it was in some ways it got people interested, you know, like Wired, I think, wrote like a small article about it. Uh, To me, that was a really big deal at the time. But what I realized almost the minute that we released it, literally, I think like an hour after we released it, I realized we had architected it (laughs) wrong because, you know, everybody was running this on their phone, but, you know, it started to be more and more data that had to come down to your phone and if you didn't have the app open for a while, when, when you reopened it, it would take sometimes like 10, 15 minutes to resync with the blockchain. So you couldn't really do anything with the app for 15 minutes while you were waiting for it to resync with the network. And I realized, you know, someone's going to have to build this thing in the cloud because the phone was just not powerful enough to run a full Bitcoin node. 
And I kind of couldn't help myself after that. I started <laughs> tinkering on the cloud version, if you will, even though I wasn't really sure if it was even going to be a company yet. Um, mm-hmm. And I, it was, it was interesting. I just kind of couldn't help it. I, <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was the itch you had to scratch. Yep. And that is sort of the canonical way so many successful founders get going. They're solving their own problem and they build something just to kind of see if it'll work and solve their own problem. So you were building this for yourself. At what point then, I'm just trying to get the, the exact timeline down. At what point did you apply to YC? Yeah, so I think, so I actually applied uh, twice. <gasps> you did? Winter 12. Yeah. Well, actually, no, three times. There was, I think before I even saw Bitcoin, I think I applied maybe in 2000. Nine or something like that, or with this uh, tutoring company that I was uh, working on at the time, but I didn't. I didn't get invited to interview for that. And then I think it was like mid two thousand eleven. I applied with the Coinbase idea, but I didn't have a co founder. I was at Airbnb, and I remember talking. I think I talked with Gary Tan at that time, and I was debating whether to leave Airbnb. And I had a very beginning of a prototype, but it wasn't very substantial, and I had no co founder, and so. I think I talked to Gary and I decided like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to reapply in six months. So they invited me to interview, but I declined it. And I said, I want to, I want to come in and interview in six months from now. And hopefully I've made more progress or something like that. Oh. And then it was probably like towards the end of 2011 or uh, early 2012 that I applied, I guess th- technically the third time, although I, you know, I didn't really come in to interview the second time. And that's when I decided to go. Make By the way, in 2010, okay. it looks like uh, it was crowdsourced product reviews. Buyer's vote? Does that sound right? Oh, yeah. You're right. Yeah, it wasn't even tutoring. the tutoring company. I Water forgot companies. about that. Interesting. So this yeah. is just for people listening. This is another example. A lot of uh, successful founders have a lot of early ideas that don't work out or they don't yeah. pursue. Uh, yeah. So don't get disheartened. Okay. So I had a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, your biggest fan before you were accepted was Gary sure. Tan. Like... I was looking yeah. through the notes and he was just like, we're 100% interviewing him. This is amazing. He was super bullish on Brian Armstrong. Well, I'm, I'm so glad Gary's now um, came back into the YC too, because he was incredibly helpful at Coinbase. I mean, even after we went through YC, he was basically meeting with me, I think every couple of weeks, almost like my CEO coach for the first year or two of Coinbase. So he, he really played a huge role That's in helping fun. us get off the ground. Okay, so. You get in, uh, you're in the summer batch, uh, which I will also point out was the largest batch we had had to date. There were, I think, 84 startups in that batch. And we we jokingly kind of refer to it as the batch that broke YC because uh, mm-hmm. we had had uh, 67 the, the batch before. And just that leap from 67 to 84, the way we were running YC, where all the partners had to know what was going on with every single startup. That one broke us and uh, we made some changes. You are now part of the largest batch we had had to date. What were you first working on? Like, tell us what you were, got started on when we accepted you. Yeah, well, actually, I remember one of the first things I did, Carolyn, you may, you may not even remember this, but I think it was with you and, and John or maybe just you, I can't remember. And the original name for the app I was working on at that time was called Bitbank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do. And I, um, I yeah. liked the name Bitbank because it alliterated, it had a double, double B sound, kind of like PayPal, yeah. Coca-Cola. <laughs> and <clears throat> I remember one of the first things you told me was, it's illegal to have the word bank in your name if you're not a bank, right. you're going to have to change the name. And I was <laughs> so disappointed because I, I really yeah. liked that name. So one of the first things I had to do was uh, go figure out a new name and did the you know typical thing where you just search and make a list and try to narrow it down. And I, this sounds funny in hindsight, but I actually didn't really like the name Coinbase. And, you know, once you, once a name is out there and it means something in your head, you tend to like it. But when you're naming something new for the first time, everything sounds terrible is my experience. So I actually kind of begrudgingly settled on Coinbase and the domain was available for about $2,000. So the .com. So I bought it and I was like, all right, I just got to keep making forward progress. I'll, I'll find a better name later, something like that. And then of course, you know, now I love it, but I love it too, by the way. I, the other thing was that I, you know, th- this story is, it's been talked about publicly somewhat, but not widely. I mean, 
So I actually did apply the second time with a co-founder, and it was a shotgun wedding in the sense that um, I reached out to this individual who had another crypto app at that time. Um, he had been creating blockchain.info, um, and we somehow decided to apply at the same time after really only meeting each other a few days ahead of time, which was a mistake and something I would not <laughs> recommend. But that was another one of the big challenges in the early days when I had first gotten into YC. You know, you all were helping me sort of get it incorporated. Let's change the name. Make sure you kind of do the, the 83B election, like all these kind of things that founders need to make sure they get right. But I also had this issue where the person I had applied with was not seeming like he was fully engaged and he hadn't bought his plane ticket and there was all these red flags. Um, and so I had unfortunately had to have an awkward conversation with him about, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this together. So suddenly I was now a solo founder in YC and there was a bunch of messy details behind the scenes on that, which I won't get into, but it was stressful to say the least. I remember I was not sleeping well. I couldn't, I was not eating enough. I was like, I thought maybe the whole company was over before it had even started. And so, yeah, it was a stressful time, but it also built a lot of character because, you know, going through stressful times helps you prepare for the next big challenge. Brian, I'll tell you just on that note, John Levy credits you to this day as handling that founder breakup better than most founders ever handle those stressful breakups. And he was like, that guy was destined to be a CEO. He was so professional about that and made such good decisions. So for what that's worth. And by the way, that was, since it was my first batch, that was my first co-founder breakup. And I thought they were all going to be that way. And I was like, oh man, what did I get myself into? But yeah. I have to say YC was incredibly helpful during that because I, I was feeling pretty lost and you know, just having the right lawyers around you at that time can actually be hugely beneficial. Yeah, I remember Paul uh, Bukait. I was meeting with him regularly. This was in the lead up to the batch. I think he was the first one who told me, he's like, you know, you got to ask this guy to resign because if he does join the batch and you break up in the middle after you've kind of incorporated and raised all this money or whatever, he's like, it's going to be way worse. Like, if, if he's not committed, you got to ask him now. And it, that was a really valuable piece of advice. too. How much time did that take up? Are we talking like, a month or like how much? Of yeah. The I mean, I feel like that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It probably took about a month in total, but it felt like it derailed everything, but it, it, it managed to work out. Oh, well, that's always frustrating when a setback is about a co-founder breakup. We've seen so many at YC and I, I always feel like, uh, feels like a waste of time, but a, a big lesson for people like inorganic, sort of co-founder matching that happens suddenly and immediately often doesn't work out. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're, you're going through YC. Tell me after you have that behind you, how did you keep going forward? Yeah. So I was really a solo founder at that point and I kind of just poured myself into following the YC advice, which was Go talk to customers and try to improve the product and then run that on repeat as much as you can. So I launched a very simple early version of it. I wasn't a designer. I was more of a software engineer. So I just used Twitter Bootstrap. I didn't really have another design co-founder or resources to hire someone. So I just used Twitter Bootstrap, got it out there. I think I posted a link on Reddit and Hacker News and I said, hey, come check out my Bitcoin wallet, right? So that got maybe, I don't know, maybe 200 people or something like that to come check it out and sign up. And, you know, basically nobody came back. So it was the proverbial, like, you know, chart goes up and the chart comes down. And yeah. I said, okay, well, that's great. It's the first version, soft launch. And I started just emailing some of the people who had signed up and saying, hey, I created this app. Can I get on the phone with you? I'd love to hear your uh, advice about what could be better. So... I remember I did this for a handful of times and uh, one day I did this with three people and I was talking to, to this gentleman on the phone and, um, and he said, well, you know, the app seems okay, but um, I didn't really have any Bitcoin, so I didn't come back. And I remember asking him on the phone, well, like some, some kind of light bulb went off after a number of these conversations. I was like, well, if there was a buy button for Bitcoin in the app, would you have used it? And he's like, yeah, maybe. He's like, I guess the only other way I could have gotten it was to wire money to Japan um, it, with Mt. Gox. And, um, you know, it just seemed kind of inconvenient. So I, I just didn't, I was busy with other stuff. I didn't come back. So I started to, th to then think about, okay, maybe this killer feature is the buy button. 
I started to think about how that would actually be possible to create that because you would need to be able to accept payments and then you would need to go acquire the Bitcoin and you would need to make sure that you, know, you had some sort of a positive margin on it so you weren't acquiring it for more than you were you know, charging. And, and so I started to think about, okay, how do I start to accept payments for crypto? And at that time, I don't think anybody had really done that in the US. And it was kind of one of these things that compliance people are often skeptical of these new things that you're buying. I think this also happened through YC, actually. I, I remember talking with the partners there and somebody introduced me to Silicon Valley Bank. That's actually, I guess, the default place that people were creating their corporate bank accounts at that time. Yeah. And um, somebody connected me to an account rep a little bit higher up at Silicon Valley Bank. And, they, and I said, well, I want to be able to accept bank transfers using the ACH network in the US. And I remember their first uh, question to me on the phone was, you know, what's your AML policy? And I remember I was Googling on... On the phone call live, I was I googled I typed into Google AML and I was like, "What the hell is AML? I don't know what that is." Um, and I'm and I'm kind of like skimming the the Wikipedia article during the call, and it's like, "Okay, anti money laundering. Okay, you have to have these programs and the transaction." I'm like, "Right, right. Okay, this is something that we're working on right now. I can come back to you with a more clear, in depth answer on that, but we're definitely committed to compliance." And I knew early on that that was something we were going to have to do because, you know. Some of these other firms were like small crypto companies I had met at that time were sort of trying to fly under the radar. And I, I knew that that would work for a little while, but if you got big, it would never work. And so I was like, we're going to do this the trusted, legitimate way. And so at that point, I then started reaching out to, again, our lawyers that YC had kind of helped me get connected to a couple of different partners at different law firms. And I, I think at that time we were working with Oric. Uh, John Batista at Oric was one of the people that YC had right. connected us to. And so I started to reach out to lawyers and I started, all right, how do we create an AML policy? Like, what does that mean even? And then somebody, I remember asked me this question, like, are you, are you a money transmitter? And I was like, I don't know. Are we a money transmitter? I had to go research all these laws. And so I remember John Batista at one point, he came to me and he said, um, there's some reasonable arguments that you're not a money transmitter at this stage, <laughs> but it's not like a lot of lawyers, you know, it's like, it's a maybe. <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank, um, they came to me and they said, we're not going to allow you to, tr to accept uh, payments for crypto until you can demonstrate to us that you're not a money transmitter. And the way you, you could do that is to get a, an, a legal opinion. And so um, I basically found this lawyer who would write us a legal opinion subject to the following, like, if this are true, then you're not a money transmitter mm -hmm. that would allow me to get the bank account open, that would allow me to accept the payments, that would allow me to put a buy button in this website. And I remember calling this lawyer on the phone and they said they wanted like $30,000 for this legal opinion letter. And um, at the time, you have to remember, I had only raised 150K and I had to pay myself with that and everything. So 30, And you've 30 blown two grand on Coinbase. <laughs> on blown the two domain, grand already. Right. <laughs> on the domain. Yeah, two, uh, two, two grand on Coinbase. And now it was, it was $30,000 for this piece of paper that was By like the way, five that's an insurance long. policy. So like, like that's that price actually sounds cheap to me, but. But I understand yeah. in context well, it was I, a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, given our legal bills now, um, you know, it's, it's kind quaint. of remarkable. <laughs> <Right>. that, that, <laughs> yeah, we probably spend that in, in, given, in mm. a given hour at this point. But no, but at that time, it was, a, it was a big decision. I remember I went to back to YC to get the advice, and I talked to Sam Altman that, on that particular day. And I remember asking him, I was like, is it worth spending $30,000 of my 150 to get this five-page piece of paper? And he was like, well, if it helps you get the bank account open that allows you to launch the feature that your customers want, it, it, it's probably worth it. And so I, I held my nose. I paid the 30 grand. Um, I got the account open. We launched this. I say we. Actually, this was right around the time the real co-founder of Coinbase, Fred Urson, was joining, <laughs> which is its own story. I can come back to you if you want. Anyway, we launched that buy button, and um, it really kind of immediately took off. That, that was when we first had product market fit. Every month thereafter, it, it started to grow organically uh, to a place where we had really trouble keeping up with it. I have to interject for a second because you had like tremendous foresight, in my opinion, recognizing that it would be very important for people operating in the crypto world to be squeaky clean above board. And you took measures very early on to be very legitimate. Why? Did, how did you know it was going to be so important? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. One is I had read 
this book about the history of PayPal. Um, I think it was called PayPal Wars, actually. It's written by one of the early employees there. And then I had sort of studied the history of Square as well, which was another, of course, fintech company in, in the Bay Area. And my time at Airbnb, actually, I had seen this as well, where you know they had launched, they'd gotten some traction, and then all kinds of regulatory policy matters started to come to the forefront where, and Uber, Uber was very big at that time too. And it was like, you know, there was all these news articles being written at that time. Like, is Uber illegal? Is Airbnb illegal? You know, and obviously as an early employee, my, my view was these things should not be illegal. They're clearly helping people. Like people want them. In fact, they're disrupting incumbents that are inefficient. And that's kind of partly why they're getting this backlash. But at the same time, you know, to win in the public debate and probably eventually get new laws written, you have to show good faith effort that you're doing the right thing. You can't just be, you know, an anarchist and kind of flout the law or be so anti-authoritarian that um, you rub people the wrong way. You have to show that you're trying to do something good in the world. And so I realized early on that um, if Coinbase was going to hold customer funds, if it was going to... Um, transact in crypto, we were going to have to go out and be a regulated financial service business. And I saw other companies at that time really taking a different approach, and they kept getting shut down after a year or two. It happened subsequently, actually, from Coinbase launching. I saw other, lots of other small crypto firms go through that. But um, even in our communication with, with Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, which was an important partner at that time, we realized that kind of transparency was the key to trust. And so I had to go in there and tell them everything that was actually happening, even the, especially the bad stuff, right? Like there were certainly um, errors and mistakes that were made, right? Where it was like, Ooh, okay. We found out that, you know, these thousand customers were able to onboard and we actually didn't collect the thing that we should have. And so we're now working to remediate that, but we just want to proactively tell you. And like the proactive communication, especially about the mistakes was, was one of the things that built trust. Another thing that I learned was by default, most people would be skeptical of what we were doing. In fact, I had some people kind of like, they wouldn't even talk to us on the phone and these kinds of things. Some people even hung up on me, you know. Um, but when I got a chance to meet people in person, they would typically trust me a lot more, right? So there was, yeah. and this is partly just human nature. You know, it's like everything on the internet, you trust a little bit less and you meet somebody in person, you like them. But it was also something about, um, you know, just I would put on a suit and tie, for instance, and go meet with like the California Department of Financial Services. And I would, I would, there's something about my personality where people would talk to me and they would think, well, I have no idea if this is going to work, but like this guy is definitely not, he's definitely not lying to me. You know, there's something that allowed me to sort of endear myself to people by just showing up in person. You know, those kind of things helped uh, make sure that the company got off on the right foot and, uh, and you know, we can talk about some recent policy and legal challenges we've had at some point too, but <laughs> I think in general, that's been a really good strategy for us and it's helped us work with regulators all over the world. I mean, I think it's important in the current context, the lawsuit from the SEC that, you know, from the very beginning, you were laying the groundwork for being above board and saying, you know, we want to do the right thing. We're here. Please regulate us. Please give us feedback. You know, it's always been part of Coinbase's DNA, and I think that's really important in light of the current situation. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think most people know that. They sort of inherently think of Coinbase as the trusted brand in the space, but they may not know that, that that's not like a new thing. I mean, that really came back even in 2012. We proactively went out to state regulators, sought to become a money transmitter, um, to get licensed as that, because that was the only license that was really there at the time. Uh, we subsequently went on to get, you know, New York issued a bit license. We were one of the first people to get that. We, we kind of, now we got regulated by the CFTC. We even acquired a broker-dealer license um, that the SEC issues, but it's dormant currently because the SEC won't allow us to activate it. And we've now done this all over the world. I mean, the, the, the sort of recent history with the SEC has been difficult in the sense that we've really been proactively asking them for more clarity in this space for quite a long time. And we actually formally filed a petition with them outlining maybe 40 different areas of the law where it's not clear today around how they apply to cryptocurrencies. And we asked them for their feedback on that. They have, they have yet to respond. Over the last year, we met with them probably about 30 times, actually. We never once got a piece of feedback from them on what we could be doing better. 
and then we received this enforcement action. Uh, the chair, Chair Gensler, actually, um, I've never actually been able to get a meeting with him in person, which is incredibly rare um, for the regulators that we work with all over the world. And so, yeah, it's been pretty frustrating. He seems quite just antagonistic to crypto at this point. I don't think he's necessarily trying to regulate it as much as maybe curtail it. And so we're trying mm-hmm. to avail ourselves of other options, including the, the courts uh, to get some case law created. And then Congress is very interested in this issue as well. And so we're seeing draft legislation now come out of Congress uh, because, of course, the, the regulator's job is to go enforce the law. It's not to create new laws. Um, and since there, there really isn't clarity about what the law should be here, in the absence of that, you know, the regulator is sort of overstepping if you, if you were to ask a number of people in Congress. And so Congress feels that they need, not need to step in and actually tell the regulator what is the law and that that's, that's of course, you know, required by the Constitution. So Anyway, suddenly the, the role of, of founder changes as you go from, you know, hacker on your laptop to eventually um, walking the halls of Congress, I guess, trying to lobby well, for really new legislation. Quick, do you think that things would have gone down exactly the way they're going down now in the absence of FTX? Or do you think FTX was the thing that just made all this kind of explode and you're a knock on effect of that? What's happening to Coinbase? Yeah, well, FTX certainly didn't help. And so... The black eye for the industry, and I think we have to be honest and say, you know, unfortunately, crypto has attracted a number of different scammers, and that's been really unfortunate. It's not entirely unprecedented. Like the internet had a lot of scams in the early days, still does, right? But it, it's also a powerful technology that, you know, 99% of people are using for good purposes. Basically, crypto has gone through this period over the last 11 years where it'll have a big run up and then a correction down and a big run up. So it's actually, it's almost like, what happened with the internet in 2001, the dot-com bubble and bust, but it's had like four of those, which is kind of surprising over a decade. And so typically what we've seen is in the down markets, when crypto will crash down, we'll see um, a lot of negative rhetoric. You know, People who have an interest in not seeing crypto succeed will kind of come out and use that as, to their advantage. And then in the up markets, we see um, irrational exuberance and euphoria that's also kind of unfounded. And it, t- it tends to attract people for the wrong reasons. So it's been rare to see technologies that got, have gotten like that much, you know, hype and then despair over and over again. I guess AI is actually kind of another one where yeah. they, they've had AI summers, yeah. AI winters, you know, and we're in, we're in a summer now. I need to interrupt. Since Carolyn referenced SBF, I have my one question about him that I'm yeah. really curious to know. Because, like, you're an insider, right? Carolyn and I don't, we're, we're, we're not in the crypto world. You're an insider. This was like your next door neighbor being let off to jail in handcuffs, right? What do people like me and Carolyn and even reporters who are reporting on it, what do they not get or what do they not understand about that whole story? Because right now, just so you know, I'm in the middle of listening to the series Spellcaster, that podcast, Mm -hmm. and it's really gripping. And I'm thinking, does this reporter know everything? I don't know. Yeah. So I think FTX got started around 2019 and I started to have periodic interactions with Sam maybe in 2021 or something around there. And, you know, he always came across to me as highly intelligent. You know, he was a bit young um, and I thought maybe he's a bit reckless here and there, but I definitely didn't ever think that he was fraudulent in the sense of, kind of stealing customer funds to put it in his own hedge fund. Yeah. And I've thought back on that a lot. Like, was there any red flags that I should have seen? You know, one thing is that he's kind of like did a speed run of the halls of power or something like that. And he was kind of on the cover of like Forbes and he was suddenly showing up at, you know, I don't really go to that many um, events, but the events that I was at, he was at all of them. And then, you know, he was kind of, getting ex- invited to speak. And th- there was this kind of aura of like founder worship or something that was happening around him. And, you know, I'm someone who's a little more introverted, right? I've always kind of tried to be um, mostly vo- focused on product and things like that, but I'll go put on the suit and tie and go to DC when I need to. I guess one thing is it made me more skeptical of people who have meteoric rises and suddenly are on the cover of these magazines. I think it's almost like an anti-signal at this point. And Partially, like I had to keep my ego in check a little bit too, because there was definitely part of me that was like, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years. Suddenly this guy comes out of nowhere and he's like, you know, the new darling. And I'm like, man, what, maybe I'm missing something. What am I missing? You know, 
One other small example is that I think in 2021, our revenue, I knew what it was. And I think there's, we, we were actually a small investor in them too, unfortunately. We had, I think we had access to their financials. We knew their revenue was about one fifth of ours. And we knew what our budget was to do venture investments and like all kinds of things in the space. And he was writing these massive checks. I couldn't really put it together. I was like, where is he getting this much money, this much liquidity? Because we didn't, we didn't have that much money. But people kept telling me, well, he's also running this hedge fund, Alameda, and that thing is just printing cash in this environment. And I remember thinking, well, okay, you know, I always felt like it's, an, it's a conflict of interest to run a hedge fund and an exchange at the same time because then you're trading against your customers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But I mean, maybe, maybe we should have done it or something. Like this guy, if he's making that much money off this right. thing, it, you know, it turned out it was, it was customer money. It wasn't even really his money. So um, I'm, I'm trying to think what the biggest thing to learn from it is. I mean, it's definitely made me more skeptical of people that have these meteoric rises. I think there was definitely some interesting phone calls there right towards the end too, where he was kind of desperately trying to raise money and he was calling me and CZ at Binance and everybody and sort of, it was, it was certainly interesting from like a historical point of view where I, I was like, we're not going to invest in this company, but like, I got to take this call just to hear yeah. what the hell is going on. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was interesting. <clears throat> it's weird that you're talking about his meteoric rise because here I am off in the English countryside. I'm not following crypto that closely. And like last spring, it's all I heard about. Sam Backman fried Sam Backman fried And this reporter came to interview Paul and was like, well, I'm interviewing the intellectuals of Silicon Valley. And of course, Sam Bankman fried you know, I was like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him. Then I am at the airport. He's on the cover of a magazine, blah, 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 blah. And it was, it was meteoric. And I said to YC partners, I'm like, am I missing something? Or does it feel like this guy's been in Silicon Valley for a decade, but it's really only been two years or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. The media, we can have like a whole hour long conversation about media and my views on that have kind of evolved over time too. But I, I used to really think, you know, well, we need to seek out media for the company um, because that's how we, it, it's our reputation. You know, we need people to become aware of it. It's, good, it's a good way to acquire customers. And in, in some ways, those things are all still true. I've also become to be more skeptical of a lot of things that I have personal knowledge of and I see in the media. I'm like, that's like 50% true at best. So I kind of default assume everything I read in the media at this point is 50% accurate. Well, that's why I asked you, Brian. That's why I asked you as an insider, what do you know that we're not seeing in the media or I'm not seeing in this like gripping podcast that I'm listening to? Yeah. Well, you're, you're talking about in hindsight on FTX or you're saying yeah. about like right mm -hmm. now in this moment? No, no, what, no. What, in, what hindsight on, on, in hindsight on FTX. There was a very strange phenomenon that happened also where after the whole fraud came out and it was exposed largely by citizen journalists, by the way, I should say um, it, there was a lot of this was happening on Twitter um, with various firms kind of contacting employees. And, you know, you could see that customer funds were paused and people were not getting their money back. And then it started to all kind of unravel. And a very strange thing happened, which was that a number of media organizations wrote almost positive articles about it in the subsequent month. And this was a very peculiar thing to me because you know, I still don't fully understand it, to be honest, to this date, but he he was a large donor to various politicians. They were almost like protecting him in a way. Um, and there was people kind of who were confused about it or maybe deliberately or intentionally, I can't tell, sort of saying, well, he was a victim of like there was a run on the bank or his biggest competitor, Binance, kind of caused the company to be killed. And you know, if you're storing 100% of customer funds, which is what they were claiming they were doing, because they're not licensed as a bank that can do fractional reserve, um, there should be no concept of a run, right? If you have 100% of the yeah. funds and 100% of people want their money back, right. you just give them 100% of the money and you close the company down and it's maybe you file for bankruptcy or whatever, but every customer gets their money back. That's sort of the worst case scenario where it might be embarrassing, but it's not um, illegal. But in this case, a bunch of customers were not getting their money back, which was very clear that customer funds had been misappropriated, yet we kind of saw a number of these articles come out that were talking about him as a victim or like, a, you know, he tried to save the world, but he was unable to do it or something. And it was like, it was really, truly bizarre. And he, he got invited to this um, New York Times deal book conference, even after he was, it was clear, like he was criminally going to be charged here. Um, and 
you know, people like applauded on stage and like, um, it, it was, it was kind of bizarre. So I still don't know quite what to make of that. There's actually a good article that came out in like, I think it was called tablet magazine about like the elite and the counter elite or something. And there's sort of this, um, this world of people who, um, kind of go to big fancy conferences and they, um, he was very ingratiated by the elite, right? He, yeah. he donated to all the right people. He had all the right causes in mind. He was making the right political um, mission statements and things like that. And so somehow he was like one of these chosen people and he was almost protected by that. But it turned out, you know, he was totally I think Maybe was totally the way fraudulent. you summarize that and, is he may be a criminal, but he's our criminal, you know, like, it, like he's our guy. <laughs> and then it's not until it's so obvious that he's has done so many horrible things that you finally have to disavow. But it sounds like that's what you're saying. Like people just were very unwilling to completely drop him, you know, as their poster child until it became really, really clear that it got really, really bad. Yeah. And he basically admitted, by the way, that there was an interview somebody did with him um, over text or what direct message or something like that, where he basically admitted that a lot of that stuff he was saying was fake. Like he didn't even really believe it. He, he, de- he described them as these are shibboleths that you now need to say in society to be accepted and, and achieve status. And he basically was working the system. It was almost like a um, reputation laundering or something like that. Um, so if you say that you're advocating for all these causes, somehow he, he was able to ingratiate himself with these um, high status institutions. And then they, unfortunately, you know, he, he conned them and u- utilized it to his advantage. Thank you for that answer. I have one other question. Back in 2020, when uh, you announced that Coinbase was going to be a mission-driven company and what that means for, you know, my family members who don't understand startup stuff. Um, that means that basically uh, your company is going to focus on achieving its mission, working on the product, and it is explicitly not going to engage in broader societal or political issues. And at the time, that was very controversial. And you said, if you're an employee and that's not what you want, we will help you find a new job, but that's the way it's going to be. Three years later, did it have any sort of long-term measurable effect at this point that you can talk about? Or were there any drawbacks? Because I'll tell you why I'm asking. Um, Paul told me just yesterday when we were talking about this podcast that you know a lot of founders he's talking to in Silicon Valley um, many are de facto doing what you're doing, but they're just not announcing it publicly. Yeah, I mean, I do think that we were early on that trend and subsequently others have followed it. And generally, it's worked really well. Um, I think, by the way, it's better to just follow it and you don't have to make a big announcement about it. I, I didn't really want to make an announcement about it either. But unfortunately, we did because we were having internal conflict and we actually had like an employee walkout that happened over one of these controversies that was happening in the world. And so it was like, literally, people just weren't coming into work. It was a huge distraction. And I realized at that point, I had made a mistake as a leader, which is that I had not been clear with everybody about the type of company we were going to be and what we were going to focus on. And so I think you can actually have both kinds of companies. I know there are lots of companies that that do choose to engage in all these societal issues. I personally think it's a distraction from the company. It potentially makes it even a lot less successful. I think if you look at what happened like with Google, for instance, and OpenAI, part of the reason um, that they, I mean, Google apparently had a lot of this technology internally, and they just weren't releasing it because they were, they were afraid of societal backlash. And, you know, it's actually arguably put them in an existential risk now versus OpenAI. So I think it's quite dangerous to have activists infiltrate the company and hold it hostage to whatever their ideals are. You have to make, be clear with people about what the company is about and just move towards that. So this was a leadership lesson for me where I, I was kind of walking on eggshells around a lot of these issues. I was not really sure how to respond to people. A lot of these issues are very complex. I don't even really know what the solution would be and reasonable people could disagree on it. But by sort of avoiding the issue, uh, avoiding conflict, not being clear, I was allowing this lack of clarity to fester within the organization. And, and we had a divide. Some people felt like, okay, well, we're here to create economic freedom in the world with crypto. We should just be focused on that. Other people felt we actually have a responsibility to engage in these broader issues and the walkouts, the tension, everything. So what I had to do was, since I wasn't clear up front, I had to remedy it, make it clear. We did help employees move on who were not um, in line with it. And to your question about you know, what's been the impact of that now over the last uh, few years, there's a few pieces we can quantify, but most of it is anecdotal, I will just tell you up front. So okay. anecdotally, I think it feels much better. 
you know, the company is more aligned. Um, we are making good progress towards our goals. There is not a lack of clarity. There's not infighting. Um, the workplace is kind of a refuge from the division that's out there in the world where people respect each other and lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds are welcome at Coinbase. We all, you know, focus on the work and we know that we each have different things we're interested in outside of work. That's totally fine. And also I have to say my job as CEO is a lot better in the sense that, you know, if I go do a Q&A with the employees, I'm not sort of being held hostage at the microphone um, with somebody asking me an impossible question about society, which I don't personally have a solution to. Because I remember when, when I was contemplating putting out this announcement, um, which a number of people within the company were very adamant that I should not do, by the way. They felt that it would- <laughs> I was going to um, ask you. Yeah. People, some um, people advised against it? Yeah, because, you know, they could see that there was conflict and everything, but they were like, just keep the peace. Like, just keep, just get people back to work. I remember somebody told me, um, like, if you publish this, you know, people from underrepresented backgrounds will never work at Coinbase again. Right. And I was like, is that true? I, I'm not sure if that's true, because I feel like people from lots of different backgrounds are interested in working in an environment where they just want to be respected and do good things and learn from their colleagues and you know focus on the mission. There's people from all backgrounds who are interested in our mission at Coinbase. So I actually went and met with some of our ERGs at that time, the employee resource groups. You know, for instance, I met with our black ERG and I kind of asked them directly. And I was like, you know, how do you feel about this? Right. And and they said, we just want to come to work and, you know, be respected, have an opportunity to grow in our career. It, it was like all the same things that other people wanted, right? So my instinct was like, this is not accurate, um, that it's going to cause some irreparable damage. I actually think it's going to help us get more aligned. And that is one measurable thing we looked at um, about a year after we put that announcement out. We looked at our some of the diversity metrics and things like that. And they've basically, every single metric was about the same or slightly better. It actually did not have a negative impact. That was good. That, that validated what I had talked to the ERGs about. Yeah. And I think just generally, it, it's made the company like pretty healthy and and productive. So I, I'm a fan. Great. Oh, I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Um, Cause it sounds like it's a, been a good thing for Coinbase might not be the right choice for every company, but it's been good for Coinbase and possibly uh, could be a, good for other, other companies. Yeah. You would not have been able to do that, Brian, if you were not in the quadrant of the aggressively independent minded people. Paul's written about this. I'm not in that quadrant. I think I'm more passively independent-minded, but you're definitely uh, aggressively independent-minded. How do you think you became that way? Is it inborn or do you just sort of get that way with more confidence or, or what? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting topic because it, it, it's, I think you're right, it's actually overrepresented potentially in founders. Even going back to just the idea of Bitcoin, when, when I first saw that, I went and talked to a number of my friends about it. And I was like, this Bitcoin paper seems pretty cool. Like, what do you think about it? And most of my smart friends who I talked to about it, they said, you know, I don't get it. This seems like kind of a scam or something like, you know, and, and so it definitely was contrarian. You know, by the way, founders can go too far with this, too, because if you question everything from first principles, then it's like, well, we should redo our HR system. We should redo, you know, it's like you, you kind of want to focus the company on like a few key things where. You're, you can be differentiated and you, you want to be contrarian, but right. And then a lot of the other stuff, you should probably just take the best practices. I drive the team nuts sometimes if I question everything too much. But um, to your question about where this comes from, I guess the, the intellectually honest answer is I don't know. I do think that one interesting theory is that I think Asperger's is overrepresented in founders, right? And, and that is probably arguably yeah. genetic. Um, we, we don't know exactly the cause of it. You know, if you look at uh, like Larry Page, you know, Elon, maybe Zuck. I don't know if he would label self-identify as that, but you can see characteristics of that across a lot of founders. I think that, you know, I've never been like formally diagnosed or anything like that, but I think that there's certainly uh, traits of that that I have, right? Where, you know, I have trouble reading sometimes people's um, like emotion or sarcasm. I, and I, sometimes I have to ask people like, how are you feeling one mm -hmm. to 10 on this? Because I, I just intuitively can't read it as well. Or for instance, sometimes in loud environments, I'll sort of like, feel overstimulated by like sounds and uh, lights and things like that. I've taken like these online tests before. I'm like, okay, I think I'm like somewhere on the spectrum here. And I've developed coping mechanisms for a lot of it where it's really not like something that hinders me. I don't think in everyday life, but mm -hmm. there's a couple books on this actually also about how um, you can have a certain degree of like social ob oblivious 
uh, I don't know what the right word, you're, you can slight, be slightly oblivious. And then, but also it allows you to question things from first principles. So it, it sort of, yes. you know, but it's a complicated thing because I, I definitely, it's not like I have no desire for social cohesion. In fact, in general, like if there's, I'm at a dinner or a bunch of friends and like, if some people are getting into some debate, I'm always like, oh, like, but really you're kind of saying the same thing. And like, I'm trying to bring people together, you know? So I, I don't know what it is, but um, I've always kind of enjoyed this idea of questioning things. And if I find something that's, you know, the conventional view is X, but I really kind of think it might be Y. To me, that always feels like an opportunity to create something new. And so um, I'm guessing it's, it's partially genetic, but I don't know the answer. Interesting. I don't know if this is an offensive question or not, but have you ever thought about getting formally diagnosed or do you not care if you're on the um, spectrum or? Yeah. It's never, it's never really been a priority for me, but I don't, I wouldn't mind doing it. Um, <laughs> I've taken online tests where I'm kind of convinced I'm somewhere on there, but um, yeah, I've never, I've never done it formally. It might be interesting at some point. Well, we've definitely have uh, had a lot of uh, YC founders who are, I'm sure, somewhere on the spectrum. I mean, actually, I w- I'd be curious if you have a thought on this, too, because I mean, you've seen so many founders. Is Asperger's kind of or somewhere on the spectrum, like overrepresented in founders? And, you know, one other area that I see it is sort of being kind of like um, very emotionally like steady, right, where that's a trait that I've noticed in myself, too, where, you know, in a f- oftentimes in the company, like some crazy thing will be happening and. I'm usually just very calm and I'm like, all right, how do we solve it? Like, what's the next step? But then on the, on the flip side, if something really great happens, I don't like get really excited and, and sort of go celebrate it like in some massive way. So I, I'm like a very steady person. I don't really have huge highs and huge lows. But what do you think Asperger's is overrepresented in founders? Yeah, I definitely do. I, yeah, I do. I think. And first of all, definitely in programmers, hands down. Yeah. Go on, Carolyn. Oh, I was Sorry. just going to say, like, I, I tend to just say like, oh, socially awkward. But I think if I really thought about it, what it really is, is exactly what you're describing, Brian. That socially awkward is just like sort of a cheesy word for it. But I, I think it's just exactly what you said. I don't even notice it anymore, honestly. I really mm. don't. You know, it seems very natural to me. And I mean, I think that if you're running a huge company and you were saying you have, you know, coping mechanisms for certain things. If you're running a big company, managing a lot of people, you probably do have to work harder at some of the interpersonal stuff. But I mean, I think it's possibly an asset because I definitely think it's overrepresented in in the founder community for sure. But anyway, I know we don't have tons of time left, so I just have a couple more questions. And and by the way, I am having so much fun chatting with you. This is why Carolyn and I are doing this podcast, because we love catching up with founders and hearing their stories. You wrote the book on it, Found, Founders <laughs> at Work. I read it before I even applied to YC. So. Oh, did <laughs> I you? Feel like, is this kind of a continuation of Founders at Work? It seems similar. It's a little bit of a continuation. I love showing um, the world that startups are filled with challenging hardships that regular people overcome. Like anyone could do this if they're determined and resilient enough. And I know you are super resilient. You're super determined. You got tons of rejection early on. In that time I came to speak at Coinbase, you told me that during demo day in in the summer 2012 batch, like some investors were like mocking you and your idea. And and you weren't really (laughs) sure (laughs) on the on the Asperger's (laughs) subject. Couldn't really tell. (laughs) But I mean you must have overcome so much skepticism. Was it because you felt like I'm building this product for me and my early employees, a lot of them, I believe were Bitcoin fanatics, right? Mm -hmm. Your team was building this product. Did you just have so much confidence in what you were building to sort of help you overcome the early rejection? I wouldn't say it was confidence. I mean, actually, I think all young people have some amount of self-doubt and maybe all people, period, not just young people. I mean, I, I certainly fit in that category. You know, I had read Founders at Work and I had read um, Paul Graham's articles on his blog and all these things. Uh, part of the reason why that, that's so valuable, and I think just the fact that YC wrote that first check to me, was that at that time, I was really filled with self-doubt. I was not sure if I could be a CEO. I thought of myself as really more of an engineer and not really good with people. 
I thought maybe I was crazy because I thought this idea with crypto seemed kind of cool, but all the smart people who I talked to didn't really get it and they didn't think it was a good idea. So I thought maybe I was the crazy one. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, if YC had not written me that first check, I don't think I would have started the company because I was working at Airbnb. Airbnb was a rocket ship. This sounds like really silly in hindsight, but I I had to call my parents and tell them that I was going to quit my job and go start this company. And, you know, now that I'm older and everything, I I look back on it fondly. But at that time, it was a big deal. I was like deathly afraid of they were they were going to be really disappointed in me. Like you quit yeah. your job at this great company to go do something on your own. Yep. In my parents' mind, you know, my my parents are brilliant and, and they they love me. But in their mind, you know, an entrepreneur is someone who starts a local shop and usually it fails. And they their whole advice to me growing up was, you know, work at a at a big legitimate company that can make sure you have healthcare. They would have loved if I had worked at you know Google or IBM or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Parents are conservative on behalf of their kids, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. For good reason. I mean, a lot of startups can be a little risky, but in in Silicon Valley, that's not really the case. Like if you raise if you raise a bit of money, you can pay yourself a salary. And if you even if it doesn't work, you often have gained valuable experience that makes you even more employable. But that's not true in most places of the world still, and it may not be fully embedded in the parental (laughs) wisdom. So I guess the heart of your question though was about determination. You know, where did it come from? I mean, one thing is that I had tried starting a company before in, in the education space, and I'd tried a couple of a handful of other ideas that didn't work out. And I definitely was filled with this desire. I really wanted to do something um, important in the world. I wanted to have an impact. Um, it was probably, you know, you can get into the psychology of this, but it was probably the root of it was, you know, I was always kind of a shy kid. I felt like I had good ideas, but I couldn't get people to really listen to me. They didn't think of me as a natural leader. They didn't really um, look up to me. And so I was not like, confident or charismatic in that way. And so I, there was something about, it was a, probably a deep insecurity really that was like, okay, I, I need to build something that is valuable in the world that people recognize um, so that I can show the people I have good ideas or something like that. Feeling worthwhile, right? You know, you have to find motivation in whatever you can get. And then that pushed me through a lot of the early years. I think, um, you know, we, we worked incredibly hard. Uh, we worked kind of 996 type hours, um, even though we didn't call it that at that time. There was a lot of rejection, you know, like nine out of every 10 investors we pitched, they, they said no. As you pointed out, you know, some of them even kind of, there was only one example I can think of where they might have been laughing at us a little bit. Uh, but, you know, banks would hang up on us or shut down our account. There was like early lawsuits. There was early employees who quit. There were a lot of dark days actually where, um, you know, we had people like thousands of people, customers upset at me, people would like leak my phone number on the internet. And I have just like a stream of angry phone calls, and I have to delete the number and get a new one. Yeah, getting getting sued, getting employees quit, like, you know, just feeling like the whole thing was going to fail. There's lots of moments like that. And as a company grows, and it starts to have more success, you know, your source of motivation, I think has to change. Because you have a fear of um, you're running away from something like this fear of never being valued. And suddenly, you know, you have a company that's worth a billion dollars or something. Some of that stuff starts to go away. And I've seen this happen to some founder friends of mine where I think their motivation actually just kind of evaporates. And, um, you know, it's stressful to run a company. And so, like, why am I going through all this, all this pain if I now have filled whatever gap that is? And so they have to migrate to some other thing. It's like if you're moving towards something because it's fun or it brings you joy or fulfillment or love or whatever, you know, I've seen people have to cross this divide of like, okay, running away from fear and anger or whatever, and towards something they actually love at a certain point. And that's, I think, hopefully how you can have longevity as a founder and start to just make it fun. Like, okay, what do I get to build today? What do I get to do? How can I learn from this experience? And of course, not every part of the job is going to be fun. No, there's no job where it's like hundred percent fun, but yeah. you know, hopefully it's like majority fun. Um, and there's still things I get to learn and do at Coinbase that, that make it really fun. Last question for me. You referenced founders at work. I had interviewed Max Levchin about the early days of PayPal. And what I was always struck by was like, basically, PayPal was like this fraud prevention company that you could make payments with, you know? Mm -hmm. Did you have in the early days, like any crazy fraud stories? Oh, yeah, lots of them. And, you know, 
So I had, I had read about that issue at PayPal. I knew how big of an issue it was. And then at Airbnb, they had similar issues and I had worked on some of them implementing the solutions. So I had enough yeah. experience with it to be dangerous at least. So that was one of the things Coinbase did well early on was um, that actually ended up being a big advantage for us. We were able to accept payments and offer people higher limits um, to give people a sense of the kind of crazy stuff that would happen and um, the risk of it. So imagine you're charging a 1% fee. So if someone buys $100 of Bitcoin, you make $1. Well, what people will come in and try to do is put in stolen credit cards and um, bank accounts and credentials and things like that, or take over someone else's account by getting malware on their computer, things like that. And so if, if a fraudster comes in and buys $100 of crypto, and then they take the crypto and they move it off the platform and they, they have it scot-free, you'll get a chargeback you know, within maybe 60 or 90 days on the credit card or bank account for the full $100. So it means you have to have 100 legitimate transactions, a dollar a piece in profit, to make up for that one chargeback. So if you have even a 1% fraud rate, it's evaporating all of your revenue. Wow. <laughs> you can't just be right you know, 99% of the time. You need to be right like 99.9% of the time or something. You start to measure it in basis points. And um, it was a constant sort of cat and mouse game uh, where we would identify patterns that fraudsters were using um, and feed it into the machine learning algorithm. And the machine learning algorithm kind of eventually came to incorporate, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of different variables. And you could imagine everything from, you know, simple things like the IP address, like where they are or the, uh, what type of um, browser or computer they're using. Um, but, you know, people would start to have all sorts of methods to thwart that and they would use, um, VPNs and things. I remember one of the funny ones that we added, signals that we added in there was improbable travel velocity, which meant like if you had just accessed the site from an IP address in the US, but like five minutes later, you accessed it from an IP address in Romania, that's, you couldn't have traveled on a plane that fast. And so we had to kind of create all of these, um, you know, calculations like that, that would sort of identify people. And it, it was a very fun cat and mouse game, but it was very scary because there was times where you might go home on a Friday night and if somebody like a, a ring of the, some of these people work in office buildings, like in certain areas of the world, if they had discovered a vulnerability, they could almost like the company could be insolvent by Monday when you arrive if you didn't detect it fast enough. And there was actually one instance where we were sitting around at having lunch in San Francisco office. You know, we we're just looking on our computer like that's weird. There's like a lot of refunds going out right now. And um, we had the ability in our admin tools for customer support agents to go in and, and um uh, you know, give a refund to customers under certain circumstances. And um, we said, oh, that's weird. A lot of refunds are happening. We start to sign on and we saw a, like a live kind of vulnerability had been, um, it was a hack basically in process. They had taken over one of the uh, customer support accounts um, using malware. If we had been asleep at that time, even like a six hour window, 12 hour window or uh, something like that, it could have you know, I think the losses were maybe like $30,000, like in that period of time, <laughs> roughly the price, the of, the price of that early. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. But um, if we had been asleep in San Francisco, you know, the company might not exist today. Like there was definitely a couple incidents like that that were a coin flip, you know, mm -hmm. not to pardon the, the pun, but, um, you know, early on where it, the company could have gone either way. But, you know, as you get as you become a bigger and bigger company, you obviously build more and more robust systems and yeah. checks and balances. And, um, you know, we live to stand the test of time. <laughs> and I sleep much better at night knowing all the things we have in place. But the early, the early days, you, you don't have this stuff built. You don't have the teams. Nope. So. Awesome. Well, I am so glad we got to catch up with you. I'm so glad the high beta wound up on the side of the success. Um, I'm so happy for you. Thank you so much for what you're doing. It definitely changed my life. And I think, you know, I, I always will have a soft spot in my heart for Y Combinator because I feel like you're the first people who saw potential in me, took a bet on me, and it helped me get on my way. And I, I've talked to a lot of people, what's the thing they're most grateful for in life? And, they, and they've said, it's somebody in their career who took a bet on them and kind of gave them a little more responsibility than maybe they even deserved at that time. And th this, that was definitely the case for me. So I will always be grateful for that. Oh, Excellent. thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Well, take care and um, we'll see you soon, I hope. Amazing. Thanks, Brian. Thank you both for the Good time. To see you. Okay, thank you. Carolyn, that was so interesting. Yeah, that was great. I love talking to Brian. I mean, that was that we had a lot of meat in that conversation. And I feel like he was 
very candid. Yeah. For, especially for a public company. Well, exactly. Like great. I always I always think like public company CEOs really don't get to be very candid ever. And so getting like a lot of good information or, or just, you know, an interesting conversation with one is is definitely great. Yeah. And I just love I had totally forgotten when we, you know, interviewed him back in 2012, how, you know, the room was kind of divided. It was, you know, crypto was brand new and right. should we fund this company? And I love how sort of the feedback from the people who took notes was high beta um, <laughs> right. because it, that's exactly what it was. And in this case, it was high beta and the way an investor wants it to be. And I love exactly. when stories end like that. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly. <laughs> um, and I also I also just sort of feel like I mean, I'm no expert on the crypto industry at all, but obviously, you know, a lot of bad things have happened in it. And I feel like there's a lot of good that can happen, too, and that has happened. And I think that I feel like Coinbase sort of stands for the more upstanding side of the industry, and I hope it continues to do so as the industry matures. Oh, I, and I think I think it actually is, it absolutely is going to, because obviously that's been Brian's sort of thing from the get-go. Um, so I'm sure it's going to continue to, you know, to be like the company that is the upstanding one in, in the crypto industry. So what I really liked about that was that Brian just admitted that he had FOMO about SBF. And I think that kind of, um, <laughs> you know, that kind of candor is really nice when people like Brian admit that. I thought that was great. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I think all of us have at one point in time had FOMO when it like comes to a competitor and you sort yeah. of think, I remember, you know, when he said, why is, well, you know, I've been in the business for years, for years. Why is he on the why cover of all guy? those magazines? Like what, <laughs> right. what's he done? Yeah. Why is this guy there? And like, yeah. that's definitely true. Yeah. Everyone thinks that. Yeah. Um, it's nice to say it out loud. Though. He admitted it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because exactly, no one would ever say it out loud. So I just loved it. And I just loved how candid he was. And, and it was just an interesting conversation. And I can't wait for it to come out. Same. So thanks, Carolyn. That was yeah. a lot of fun. And I will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.